Hello, and welcome to the Podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 61st episode of the Nauticast entitled Paying the Iron Price, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 7 in which Danny faces the sheer human misery that fuels the Game of Thrones. Wow. And sets out to save the innocents, one of whom will change Danny's life forever for, for the good, right? Oh, only happiness, sunshine, rainbows follows from this chapter. I mean, Danny and Drogo are winning at the end. They're going to go off and conquer Westeros, right, Jeff? Yes, yes, if you are reading George R. R. Martin's original outline, kind of-ish. But no, <laughs> no, actually not at all. Everything goes to shit after this chapter here for Daenerys. So, so as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfband Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Elsie Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Warden of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Baby the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse. Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, and our two newest small council members. So our first one is the High Bearded Priest, formerly known as Sir Snark Knight. He has been promoted to the High Priesthood, so good on him. And our final small council member, new, new small council member, is the Blue Ringed Octoling. So thank you, gentlemen, very much, and thank and welcome to our newest small council members. Thank you, counselors, very much as always, especially our new ones. We're so excited you decided to join that tier. We're so flattered, and we hope you like the content we delivered to you earlier than ever now. <laughs> Got to meet and hang out with Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves at Ice and FireCon recently, which was really great. So as always, thank you, guys. We, uh, we're very grateful for your support. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Doug Bank novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmith sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our small council patrons, Sir James, the gym that was promised, who asks, I would like to hear some tinfoil on Targaryen babies with wings, please. Danny had one and Magor had one. What the hell is going on? <laughs> and then he has this quote here. The moon turned and turned again, and the black of night queen Eleanor II was delivered of a malformed and stillborn child, an eyeless boy born with rudimentary wings. And a note from the iBooks for Game of Thrones, monstrous stillbirths seem to have plagued the Targaryen women in the past. It is said that three of Maegor the Cruel's wives gave birth to infants that had small wings or scaled tails, and, this is the other major example, that Princess Rhaenyra, who fought for the Iron Throne during the Dance of the Dragons, was similarly afflicted. Yeah, this is an interesting motif that has been interpreted in a bunch of different directions. There are some people who think that maybe the reputation of this happening to Rhaenyra or Maegor's wives is, is overblown or just a story being told. But then again, we do see it happen directly right. with Danny in this storyline. So what do you make of that, Jeff? So there is a conspiracy theory that's out there called the Grand Maester Conspiracy Theory, which has that the maesters are conspiring to end magic and dragons forever in the world. And historically, the maesters were working to kind of end House Targaryen's reliance on dragons and eventually end House Targaryen as well. Now, I don't agree with all of the interlocking narratives that we have going on here. Them trying to end House Targaryen seems a little weird given that the last dragon dies in 130 AC or rather it dies in like 135 or so AC or so during the reign of Aegon III. And the House Targaryen exists for another 165, 160 years afterwards there. But I do see the maesters potentially looking at dragons as a scourge on the earth and having the potential to create a lot of mass human suffering and death, something we saw particularly in Fire and Blood Volume 1 with the Dance of the Dragons, as well as Aegon's Conquest as well, where you had tens of thousands of dudes die at the Field of Fire, for instance. So what's going on with the maesters here? We do know that there's a maester with Rhaenyra there. We do know that Rhaenyra is... Rather unpleasant, I think we can say, with some certitude, regardless of whether her claim to the Iron Throne was the correct one or not. She doesn't make friends very easily. That's definitely true. She makes enemies much easier. And for that matter, too, when we talk about Daenerys, which we're going to be talking about here momentarily, Daenerys Targaryen is with someone who has been trained under the Maester's arts, as we're going to be speaking about here, and that Maester namely being Marwyn. And there's a further kind of unfolding of this. There's a kind of sub-theory that Miri Mazdor, that Mazdor is a kind of pronunciation of maester kind of associized? Is that the way you want to pronounce it? Kind of put in such a – put in the Eastern context, so to speak. Sure. It's a reverse of Maggie the Frog in terms of the the Westerosi word maester has kind of been transformed into mazder by associate 
you know, accents and culture. And I, I think that is an interesting theory. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into the, the Marwin connection, but he is associated with uh, the more kind of dark magical side of this, the Citadel, which has this rational face, but he's kind of the, the underbelly up and he's associated with characters like, like Tyburn and the, the faceless man pretending to be Pate in a feast for crows. <laughs> so that, that's, that's definitely an interesting link and could point to Miri Mazdar using not just blood magic from a shy, but stuff she specifically learned from Marwyn mm-hmm. to uh, transform Rago in the way that she does. And yeah, that, that, I agree that the Maester conspiracy on the whole is a little tinfoily because they're so decentralized. And as you say, the Targaryen regime lasted much longer than the dragons. Right. But but this element of it makes sense to me. I, I like the idea of uh, the Maester order, which pretends to be so rational and above it all, but actually is willing to get their hands very, very dirty in a very mm-hmm. magical way when it comes to advancing their agenda. So I, I got to say, I like that theory. Yeah, I like it too. I mean, there's a further, like, if you want to hear some like super tinfoil theory, there's this whole idea that the Valyrians themselves are connected biologically with the dragons, like way back in their ancient past. And sort of the same way that the, that House Manderly is sometimes seen as potentially connected to the actual mermen themselves, their sigil being a merman. So is there a possible connection between the Targaryens and dragons too? Maybe, possibly, could be. I mean, we do know that the children of the forest likely mated with human beings and formed something like, or we we suspect rather that House Reed derives from a union between the children of the forest and the first men. Could it be possible too that you could have some other biological inbreeding far back in the Song of Ice and Fire history? I think that's possible, especially with stuff like the fireworms that kill poor area Targaryen and fire and blood, and people have speculated that they're like leftovers from that kind of horrible mad science slash blood magic experimentation of of merging human and dragon. But when you look at the cases of these deformed babies coming out, there is always this person on hand or this potential agenda trying to sabotage the person. So that makes me think the common denominator is someone specifically messing with the birth. It's not, it just, it happens by coincidence that these Targaryens have these monstrous babies just when they're in the midst of civil conflicts and people have very good reason to wish them harm. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's that points to another actor. Now, maybe that other actor, that maester or a maester-influenced person in Mary Master's case is drawing on that Targaryen connection. Yeah. Maybe that's something they, that's an ingredient they need to make this magic work. But I think there is a, I think the instances in which we see these kind of babies point to a third party's involvement. Yeah, I do agree with that. But he did ask for tinfoil, so I provided the ultimate tinfoil that I could think of. So You always give the people what they want, Jeff. I, I try to do that very, very much as much as I can. So thank you, Sir James, the gym that was promised. If you guys are interested in asking us questions that, we'll be, that we will have to answer on this podcast, you're welcome to sign up at patreon.com forward slash nauticast ASOIF at our sworn sword or above levels, and you're welcome to ask us questions we'll answer here. I always love how, how everyone in the fandom has their own distinct interest and how the yeah. story has enough to support all these distinct areas of focus. And that's something that makes me really happy about both the series itself and the fandom around it. So keep those questions coming. Absolutely. So thank you guys again. And now we will transition on into a Game of Thrones Daenerys 7. And guys, you know me. I like to joke around these synopses, but this chapter, it's a hard one to get through just reading it. And I just want to say, and I think both of us want to say that before I get started on the synopsis, that there will be frank descriptions of rape, sexual assault, and violence against children in this chapter description and synopsis and our ensuing discussion thereafterwards. And if that's not for you, there's no judgment from either of us, obviously. So here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 7. The battle is done, but the horror and violence are only getting started. Daenerys Targaryen rides her silver through the torn-up fields with her handmaids and Kaz. And the ground? Well... It's littered with arrows and the telltale signs of Dothraki Aryx, namely dead and dying humans and horse bodies and their blood everywhere. The Jakaran, or Mercy Men, were moving through the field of death, armed with gigantic axes and hacking the heads off the dead and dying alike. And behind them came small girls who gathered arrows from the field into baskets. And behind them, the feral dogs. And this is how A Game of Thrones Daenerys 7 opens, and it's only going to get worse from here on out. The sheep had been the first to die, but Drogo's Kalasar hadn't done that. That was Kal Ogo's Kalasar. Drogo's riders would work to kill the shepherds before killing any sheep. And on up ahead, the town was on fire with smoke rising into the sky. All the while, Kal Drogo's blood riders herded prisoners of war with whips away from the town itself. But these weren't the Lazarine. Their much worse fate is coming next. These were the survivors of Kal Ogo's Kalasar, which Drogo had defeated in the battle outside of the town. So let's transition to the Lazarine. Daenerys sees them, thinking that the Dothraki call them the, quote, lamb men. And where once she had cultural blinders on and would have thought them to have the same appearance as the Dothraki, now they look much different than the Dothraki with their squat bodies, flat faces, and short hair. And beyond the physical differences, the Lazarine also bared another striking difference. They were herders of sheep and ate vegetables. 
and they were conquerable. Danny sees a boy making a run for the river. Drogo's Dothraki riders box the boy in, cracking whips in his face, forcing him to run around in a circle. They whip his thighs, turning them red with blood. Then they hit his ankles with a whip. When the boy could only crawl, they put an arrow in his back. Jorah meets up with Danny outside of the shattered gates in his knightly armor. And while the Dothraki had mocked him for wearing armor, he'd insulted them right back. A sword and arrow had been drawn, and the Dothraki who had insulted Jorah the most had been left bleeding out in the ground. But Jorah's not here to reminisce on killing Dothraki Rando number eight. Instead, he tells Danny that Drogo awaits her in the town and that he's only ever so slightly wounded in the battle. No need to worry, Danny. Besides, how fucking cool is it that Drogo killed both Kal Ogo and his son Fogo? Am I right? Danny provides the backstory. Ogo's Kalasar was besieging the Lazarine town when Drogo arrived. The Lazarine had thought Drogo to be their deliverance. They were wrong. Across from where Danny is speaking with Jorah, a girl Danny's age is thrown face first into a pile of bodies and is then raped by a Dothraki rider. I am the blood of the dragon, Daenerys Targaryen reminded herself as she turned her face away. Jorah tells Danny that most of Ogo's Kalasar has fled, but Drogo now has 10,000 captives. Slaves, Danny thought. Most likely, Drogo would take the slaves down to Slaver's Bay to sell them. She wanted to cry, but she told herself that she must be strong. This is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne. Jorah told Drogo to make for Marine, where he'd get a good price for the slaves. With all the human suffering at work in Essos, Drogo would get a really, really good price for selling his, these particular captives into sex slavery, especially the boys and girls alike. Besides, enough children would survive to get a good price, and man, this really doesn't get nearly enough mention about how casual Jorah is about selling children. Children into fucking slavery. But behind Danny, the girl being raped sobs. Danny turns her horse around and tells Jorah to make them stop. Jorah, a perplexed war criminal, asks what she means. She wants them to fucking stop, you monster. She tells her Dothraki cause to aid Jorah in stopping the rape. Jorah protests that Danny doesn't understand that this is the way of war. Her cause agrees as the second rider begins raping the Lazarine girl. But if it's the willing that offends Danny, her cause will cut her tongue out. I will not have her harmed. I claim her. Do as I command you, or Kyle Drogo will know the reason why, Danny says. And her blood riders spring into motion. She tells Jorah to go with them. As you command. The knight gave her a curious look. You are your brother's sister in truth. Viserys? No. Rhaegar. At first, the rapers laugh at the orders of Danny's cause, but then the laughter stops when Ago points to Danny behind them. They bug out, but the one rider currently raping the girl is so intent on his pleasure that he doesn't hear them. Jorah pulls them off the girl, and the man bounds to his feet, knife in hand. Ago's arrow takes him in the throat, and good fucking runs that dude. They return the girl to Daenerys and ask her what now? Bind her wounds. Heal her. Treat her like a human being. The same goes for the rest of the people that Danny encounters as she enters the burning town. She stops rapes, claims women for herself, and proceeds forward to Drogo. But Danny is a little hurt that no one besides one woman thanks her. Shouldn't they be more grateful? Mm, don't know about that one, Danny. Really don't know about that one. Jorah tries his best to ensure that Danny doesn't stop all the evil occurring in the city because he would. Of course he would. He tells Danny that she can't claim them all, and Danny says, Fuck you, scrub, I'll do what I want. Yeah, look it up, guys. Danny calls Jorah a fucking scrub in a Game of Thrones scenario 7. But all the same, the town is surrounded by the noise of screaming and wailing children. It's um, really, really disturbing to imagine. Daenerys finds Drogo in front of the Lazarine Temple with a pile of heads rising next to him. But Drogo's victory had come at some personal cost as an arrow is sticking out of his arm with blood covering the left side of his body. Danny dismounts and Prego runs to Drogo. When she gets up to him, she sees that Jorah hadn't been precisely honest with her about the extent of Drogo's wounds. Drogo had taken an arrack wound and his left nipple was gone with a bit of flesh hanging out of the side of his body. A scratch moon of life from Arak of one blood rider of Kal Ogo. I kill him for it. And Ogo too. How reassuring, Drogo. Thank you for that. But then a rider reigns up. It's Mago the horseshit eater. He's pissed. He won his spoils of war, namely women. Drogo asks Danny whether this is true, and she says as much. Drogo frowns and says that this is the way of war, and it's up to the Dothraki to do what they will with captive slaves. Well, Danny will do just that. She'll claim all of them and hold them safe. She advises Drogo that if the Dothraki want to mount the Lazarine women, they should take them as wives. Does the horse breed with the sheep, Kotho, Drogo's worst blood rare asks. The dragon feeds on horse and sheep alike, Danny spits back at him. Drogo is all pleased at Daenerys and her ferocity. He tells Mago the horse eater to shut up and that these women belong to the Khaleesi, but then Drogo grimaces in pain. Danny asks where the healers are, and well, Drogo sent them to his wounded riders. They need the healers more. And then a voice rises behind Danny and Drogo. Silver lady, I can help the great rider with his hurts. 
Oh boy, it's the moment Emmett was pining after last week. Quaith, it's Quaith. She's here, man. She's entered the game. What? Was it something? Every single week, you, I get this look from you. It's of love, Jeff. I'm only disappointed because I love you. <laughs> That's what my mother used to say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it is actually not Quaith. She comes in a Clash of Kings. It's Miri Mazdor, and at long last, Daenerys has a side character who isn't an NPC. Well, the Dothraki immediately want to cut her tongue out, but Danny says to let her speak. So she introduces herself as Miri Mazdor, a god's wife. Ambeji, Kothu corrects. And P.S. Can we super kill her, Drogo, and wait for the eunuchs? The Dothraki asks. You cannot, Danny replies. Danny asks where Miri learned her skill, why she learned her skills in healing and birthing from her mom, who was a god's wife. She also learned it as shy from the mages. And finally, she learned it from the maester of the citadel. A maester, Jorah says inquisitively. Yep, a maester. Marwyn, he named himself, from the sea, beyond the sea, the seven lands, he said, sunset lands, where men are iron and dragons rule. He taught me the speech. Well, that is very silly, Dejora. A maester and a shy. What was around his neck, Miri? Why a chain so tight that Miri thought it would choke him? Well, that's enough evidence for Jorah now, but Danny still has a question. Why would you want to help my call? Very good question, Danny. As for that, Miri has a really good line to feed back to Danny. All men are one flock, or so we are taught. The great shepherd sent me to earth to heal his lambs wherever I might find them. Nice line, Miri, but is that precisely true? Are you really interested in ensuring Drogo's recovery? We'll have more to say about that. But Kotho slaps Miri up, saying the Dothraki are not sheep. Danny tells him to quit being an asshole. She's Clay Miri, and she's not to be harmed. Miri says the arrow needs to come out, directs everyone back to her temple, and then they're off. Drogo leans on Danny to get into the temple itself. The party passes through numerous rooms of the temple, and then Miri directs them to a room with an altar in it. She asks for Drogo to be carried to it. Hmm. Laying Drogo on an altar as all men are part of the great shepherd's flock. I'm getting some tabernacle in the Sinai Passover lamb vibes here, Emmett. I don't know what you think. Absolutely. I had the same thought, actually. Yeah, I just don't know what to make of this Miri Mazdor character. Is she good? Is she bad? I mean, there's so many things going on at work here. Well, Miri then tells everyone to leave, but Drogo's blood writers say, not so fast. They're blood of Drogo's blood. They'll wait with him. Kotho draws near to Miri. Know this, wife of lamb god. Harm the call and you suffer the same. Danny again instructs Kotho that Miri is not to be harmed and that Miri will do no harm to Drogo. Mm-hmm. Danny felt that she could trust this old plain-faced woman with her flat nose. She had saved her from the hard hands of her rapers, after all. Oh boy, Danny. Oh boy. Miri tells the blood riders to help hold Drogo down while she grabs her box of murder uh, healing instruments. Healing. They're, they're healing instruments. She grabs the arrows, sl- sings a Lazarine song, heats a flagon of wine, pours it over the wounds. She pushes a mound of wet leaves over the wounds, smears it with a pale green paste, and then pulls the skin back over place. She then stitches the wound together with thread, tells Danny that there will be fever, itching, and a great scar. I sing of my scars, sheep woman, Drogo says, flexing his arms. <laughs> I just love that image of Drogo. Oh, and Drogo is not to drink wine or milk of the poppy. Nothing to make the pain go away. Gotta fight those quote-unquote poison spirits. Mm-hmm. But Danny has something else to bring to Mary's attention. Before, I heard you speak of birthing songs. Danny's time to give birth is near, and she wants Mary to be present when she goes into labor. Drogo laughs at her, telling her that you don't ask slaves to do something, you tell them. Drogo hops down from the altar, all arrogant, saying, The stallions call. This place is ashes. It is time to ride. The blood riders file out, but Kotha reminds Miri that her fate is tied up in Drogo's. As you say, rider, the great shepherd guards the flock. And that is a Game of Thrones Daenerys 7. Now, I'm not the squeamish type usually when it comes to this stuff, but this chapter on initial read, this reread, and again, it's portray- and also its portrayal in Game of Thrones Season 1 – gets under my skin in major, major ways. It's the rapes, the violence against children, the horrors of war. It's Martin's very successful attempt to show kind of both coins of the war, both sides of the coin, rather. In this case, he's showing the horror side, the stomach-churning violence, innocents dying, terrible things happening to people that don't deserve to have terrible things happening to them. And that's a really crucial part of how Martin does his depictions of war. But the Dothraki sack of this Lazarine town turns that message up to 11. More than anything else, to kind of focus away from like kind of the greater overall theme that Martin is going for, this chapter vaults Daenerys Targaryen's story towards that weird, really weird, amazing magical weirdness that vaults Danny's story into hyperdrive. Well said, sir. I mean, this is really where Danny's storyline, already one of the better ones in the Game of Thrones, is just injected with rocket fuel and blasts off for the moon. 
while her final three chapters in book one have more iconic, memorable scenes than this one, I would probably rank them higher than this chapter mm-hmm. in my grand list of A Song of Ice and Fire chapters. Sure. But none of them would work as well as they do without this chapter setting the stage and introducing this this palpable tone of dread and chaos that only ramps up when blood magic gets involved. Mm-hmm. There's no magic in this chapter, but the focus is already on the same theme, sacrifice and bloodshed and how to stay true to yourself as innocents suffer and die. Moreover, Danny Seven Axe has a commentary on the Civil War building to a head over in Westeros. Our next two episodes will be on Tyrion Eight and Catelyn Ten, the battles of the Green Fork and Whispering Wood, respectively, Woo-hoo. the first large-scale conflicts in the series, absolutely. <laughs> and both of those chapters are exciting in their own way, despite Martin's personal feelings about war and desire to show how horrible it is. These, both of these chapters are really cinematic and attention-grabbing. Sure. The Green Fork is all like grounded military minutiae, the Whispering Wood is all arty abstraction, but both of them are attempts on Martin's part to enthrall you with his depictions of the battlefield. Absolutely. This chapter is the opposite. This is the author forcing us to stare the bleak, bone-chilling atrocities of war straight in the face. And specifically, he's denying us the comforts of rousing imagery or an investment in one side winning. Right. As Danny says, this is the price to be paid for the Iron Throne. And as she'll say in her next chapter, the price is too high. Mm-hmm. As the War of Five Kings really begins, Martin wants us to keep in mind what a nightmare it looks like to the ordinary people who get caught up in its gears and emphasize that it's our hero's responsibility to do something about that. Right. And Danny does do something about that throughout this chapter. She is consistently acting for the betterment of those who are being held down. But at the same time, she's also wearing the boot that is holding these people down. She is the one that has ushered forward this great conquest of Khal Drogo's Kalasar. You know, this chapter reminds me so, so strongly of Quentin's second chapter from A Dance with Dragons and just how brutal the warfare is depicted and how it's not and by the time we're getting to the battle itself it's not that these sellsword companies are fighting the you know the ranks of the unsullied or men who have fought these massive battles before and are versed in it and they're veterans they know how to use the spear they're fighting boys and green boys and they finally have to kill a dead man who already has maggots inside of himself like that's really like these two chapters feel Almost as if Martin was drawing a whole lot of inspiration to Dance of Dragons from going back and reading Daenerys 7. You've got the presence of slaves or ex-slaves in the case of Astapor. You've got people being turned into slaves in the case of the Lazarene Daenerys 7. And wow, it's it, it really feels like both of these chapters, more than anything else, are not so much about military conquest. I mean, there's a there's a Droka makes some one line about how the Lazarene shouldn't be grazing north of the river. But that's that's a pretext for war. That's not a cast a spell. It's not a justification for it. It's a it's an attempt by Drogo and his Kalasar to raise this town to the ground, take his people and sell into slavery in order to purchase the ships and the swords necessary to get Daenerys and her son onto the Iron Throne. And that should really kind of shroud Daenerys' eventually eventual entry into Westeros and a lot of ambiguity. I completely agree. That's a great comparison because you have the sense in both these chapters of the hero having to kill a version of themselves or see a version right. of themselves killed. Like Danny identifies with the girl Aroha and sees herself in her. When Quentin talks about the new wave of Unsullied as green boys screaming for their mother as he kills them, he's describing himself when he, when he dies a few chapters down the line. So you get this horrible sense of, again, again, sacrifice and sacrifice for what cause? Uh, another parallel, like, you know, Danny is trying to get to the Iron Throne. Sure. Quentin is trying to get Danny on his side so his family can have vengeance for what happened when they were in charge. So kind of the same sort of parallel, too. We have Quentin, who is also aspiring to the Iron Throne, too, at some level. Now, it's not clear how much he actually wants it, but it is repeated over and over in Arianne's winter chapters of King Quentin. Why did it sound so silly? Exactly. That's the price to pay for the Iron Throne. And we see Martin drawing this direct parallel. And as I said, that has a lot of implications for the war over in Westeros. But we start this chapter off, as you say, with this, this just stream of nightmarish imagery. The, the crops replaced with corpses, which is just a great image of like the stuff of life being replaced by the stuff of death. You've got the horses screaming as they die, as Danny passes them. You have that very specific, horrible image of this young boy being tormented and murdered by the archers. It's, it's, it's some heavy shit. And it's very easy for imagery like that to come off as, as exploitative, as just shock value for its own sake. And there are moments in A Song of Ice and Fire and a few more in Game of Thrones that feel that way to me. Yeah. But I think overall Martin is very good at using these horrors for a sound narrative purpose, to reveal something about culture and character. So starting with culture, we have this ongoing examination of Dothraki moors through Danny's eyes. And as, as this chapter goes along, you keep seeing this Cal Ogo mentioned. And it's not explained at first what's going on, but you gradually realize that that Drogo has taken down not only this Lazarine town, but another Kalasar that was in the midst of attacking the town themselves. 
As Danny notes, this is in spite of them sharing meat and mead together beneath the Mother of Mountains mm-hmm. back in Vaistothrak. But out on the grass plains, it, it's fair game because the manifest destiny drive for empire that Drogo outlined with his big speech in Danny's last chapter, that swallows up everyone, including your own people. I think that's part of what Martin is trying to say here. But that's not to say there's no distinctions. Danny notes that the Dothraki prisoners are generally calmer and prouder than the Lazarine. Mm-hmm. And that's because this is the soup they swim in. They're used to it, more or less. I mean, that sounds very glib, but they're certainly more used to it than the Lazarine. Yeah. That's that's why you have, like, Dany's cause for your young men. They're just smiling and joking as they ride through the killing fields, and she's just aghast, because they're used to this. And the Lazarine, by contrast, are not exactly in a laughing mood. And rereading this chapter in context with the ramp-up to the War of Five Kings and the other POVs, the Lazarine felt to me like stand-ins for the common folk of Western. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's really, really good. Five Kings. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, in particular, this passage is devastating. Ogo's Kalasar had been attacking the town when Caldrogo caught him. She wondered what the landmen had thought when they first saw the dust of their horses from atop those cracked mud walls. Perhaps a few, the younger and more foolish who still believed that the gods heard the prayers of desperate men, took it for deliverance. So if you think about this as a metaphor for what's going on in Westeros, Ogo is Tywin, right. burning his way through the Riverlands, attacking Cidolians, and Rob, well, he's Drogo, seemingly riding to the rescue at Riverrun, but in practice, he is also unleashing another wave of hell on these hapless non-combatants in his path. Now, don't get me wrong, Rob, Rob is not personally like Drogo, right. but Martin shows us over and over that his men commit atrocities just like the Lannisters. They're not magically better guys just because their leader is nicer. Bracken men hang women for, quote, laying with lions. Mm-hmm. Karstark men rape and murder people as they hunt for Jamie. And most tellingly of all, Roos hires the bloody mummers after they abandon Tyrone and they go back to doing the exact same horrors for him that they did for the Lannisters. And there's no difference. So I, I think that is in part what Martin is going for with the repulsive horrors in Danny Seven. It's not just shock value. He's trying to comment on the war in Westeros by stripping away all the distinctions and all the motivations and all the sigils and just leave the reader with the raw, bloody consequences of going to war. Of course, people are going to take what you're saying as uh, Rob Stark equals Khal Drogo here, and that will be uh, clearly what I'm saying. Clearly, yes. what you're saying. I always say my words in perfect precision, and they are always received with perfect precision. That's good. That's good. I need to like kind of model my own social media presence and posture off of yours. But no, that's <laughs> so. I, I think you're absolutely correct. It's like you, we're stripping away like sigils and kind of the the sirs and the knightly virtues and the kind of the way that Westeros kind of sanitizes the actual bloodshed that they are inflicting on people there. We're getting almost in, in a sort of the same way. It's we're getting that Sander Clegane, it's steel swords who make the world sort of thing here. But in the case here, it's steel arrows who are making the world. It's not sweet songs and pageantry and knightly virtue and lordship and nobility and titles. These are things that are not totally, but are in, in part working to conceal the actual business of running a kingdom. And part of the business of running a kingdom as Rob and Tywin and Renly and Stannis and Joffrey and Jon Snow is eventually going to find out, is inflicting harm on human beings and taking human lives. For sure. And you see those cultural divides in terms of how people react to it. As you say, you know, the Dothraki are, are kind of into it. The Lazarine are horrified by it. And so Danny has to find out where she, where she stands. So we'll talk more about cultural divides in a bit. But let's first establish where Danny is coming from in this chapter, because this is where the discourse around Daenerys starts to get really, really heated. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, it's just never going to stop. So we're never. just going to have to deal with that. So on one level, she has gotten closer and closer to the Dothraki way of seeing things. You have that interesting part where Danny says she once might have taken them for Dothraki, for they had the same copper skin and almond-shaped eyes. But now they looked alien to her, squat and flat-faced, their black hair cropped unnaturally short. So that's just a great way of showing how far Danny has come. Like when she first showed up in Pentos, the Dothraki and Lazarine would have looked identical, but now she she knows better. She's had right. these experiences, so she can see, no, these are not one just giant ethnic mass. These are, in fact, different peoples with different histories and different ways of life. But on the other hand, she has to deal with this fact that, like Tywin vis-a-vis Masha Hedl, as we were saying in Tyrion 7, the Dothraki don't really see the Laz- Lazarine as people, no. as human beings who are equal to them. She is a land girl. She is nothing, Khaleesi. The riders do her honor. The land men lay with sheep. It is known. It is known, her handmaid Eerie echoed. It is known, agreed Jogo, astride the tall gray stallion that Drogo had given him. If her wailing offends your ears, Khaleesi, Jogo will bring you her tongue. So you have this kind of just example of, of racist ideology in action where it's it's not just about personal hatred but dehumanization. Right. Which, of course, allows the Dothraki to smile and cheer as they do these horrible things. But Danny can't strangle her empathy. She has that line about the, the slaves. Danny pitied them. She remembered what terror felt like. And that's interesting because when did she feel that terror? 
with her son in stars, right. with her husband when they first got married. That that's what really complicates this for Danny, that her empathy is rooted in her initial treatment by Drogo, which is hard for her to deal with because that relationship has changed so much and it's become kind of her foundation now that Viserys is dead. So she doesn't really want to have to deal with the fact that that's kind of the nightmare she's trying to get these women away from. And so you, I think you see the, the cracks forming in Danny's newfound identity as Drogo's Khaleesi. That, you know, she's, she's starting to, to see that identity falter a bit. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? No, I think that sounds absolutely correct. And I think you also have to factor in, too, that she's watching people being forced into slavery as well, both the Dothraki from Kalogo as well as the Lazarene as well. She tends to have more pity and empathy for the Lazarene because all of her moves that she makes to safeguard them are for the Lazarene. And I think that she's projecting an image of herself there where she is utter, where she was essentially sold into marriage slavery. Is that a real thing? I think it's a real thing in the case of Daenerys Targaryen in order to ensure that Viserys will, would be able to gain his crown. So, it's interesting. It's kind of an aversion here where Daenerys is attempting to gain her own crown through the selling of human beings into slavery itself. So, is she that much better than Viserys here? I mean, it's it's subtext to this chapter, but I think it's some, it's subtext that Martin intentionally wants us to call to and think about. I'm not saying that Daenerys is Viserys here, but there is a common thematic kind of line that's running through. There's these two Targaryens attempting to gain their crowns through slavery at this point. Oh, agreed. They're not the same person, but the effect is the same. Like, we can recognize that Daenerys is a better person than Viserys and invest more in her and care more about her. But if you're one of the Lazarene, why should you care? Right. Why should that distinction matter at all to you when this world was just, your world was just destroyed to put Daenerys on the Iron Throne? And yeah, as you say, it's rooted in Viserys' attempt to make good on his Targaryen identity. That's why he sold Danny into slavery. That's why she now has this Dothraki identity, because Viserys was trying to go back to Westeros. So you have the flip side of the coin for Danny, besides this Dothraki identity she's struggling with, is her Targaryen identity, right. which is more aspirational as opposed to the day-to-day lived reality of the Kalisar. She's making that identity up. And I don't mean as that is glib or dismissive. I think identity is in part something you create around yourself. It's not just something sure. you're born with. But it's different from Viserys, who was born and raised in Westeros. This identity is not a mantle that she can wear at will. She has to actively build it. And this chapter is about her realizing that the foundation for that identity, as with the Red Keep itself, is a sea of blood. As she says, and what's probably my favorite line in this chapter, this is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne. That, that line, this is what it looks like, that feels very meta to me. That feels like Martin talking to the reader and, and trying to, you know, throw his hands out and point to what's going on and say, hey, these are the blunt realities of war. Notice how little they resemble the shining vision of the songs that Sansa loves so well. Yeah. Notice how notice how it doesn't resemble Westeros as the place of smiles and contentment and home that Danny is wistfully envisioning throughout the series. And as she's being faced with the reality, oh, this is what it might actually look like in practice, getting me there. And so this is the contradiction she faces, which is one faced by leaders not only in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in the real world. Do the ends justify the means? Is it possible to build a genuine piece out of bones? Or will such an endeavor always eat itself alive? And mm-hmm. on the whole, I think Martin comes down pretty firmly on the latter, that it's, 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 a, it's a bad idea. That's why Danny's reward for blood magic isn't Drogo back in his glory, but a comatose husband that she winds up mercy killing anyway. Yep. That's why Tywin's post-Red Wedding peace, quote-unquote peace, immediately turns to ashes. And that's why Stannis burning Shireen will not actually grant him the power that he needs to save the world. Keep in mind that the puppet master behind so much of what happens in Danny's arc is Varys. And no one believes the ends justify the means more than Varys. That's yeah. his whole thing. But it's all going to go wrong for him in large part because he just assumes he can control Danny throughout the story when we see plenty of evidence he really can't. Especially since he's working from afar through cat's paws he really can't rely on. And of course, Danny can't and doesn't articulate everything we're just, we just said, but she feels it all at once when she sees poor Arrowhead being raped. She just feels, no, no, it's not worth it. I, I can't be a part of this. And it's meant to repulse us as well, even compared to the other atrocities in this chapter. She's just, she's so young and she's just screaming and more and more men show up. It's, it's, it's just hideous. And it's, I think it's specifically designed to evoke Taisha's fate mm. from the, from Tyrion's backstory. So, we, we cheer Danny on when she saves this, these women. She's doing the Ned Stark thing, right? Of insisting on saving the innocents, even amidst brutal bloodshed. Save the children. Always save the children. And that you get that other telling comparison from Jorah. The knight gave her a curious look. You are your brother's sister, in truth. Viserys? She did not understand. No, he answered. Rhaegar. So obviously, Rhaegar Targaryen is a character hidden in the backstory. There's still a lot about him we don't know. But I think you can see Jorah making the argument here that there are two kinds of Targaryens and that Danny is proving herself to be the better kind, similar to kind of the struggle Barristan will undergo when deciding whether to trust Danny. Like it's, it's the coin flip that, that Jaehaerys talked about. Right. And 
Because that's not right. Jorah is arguing that Danny is coming up the other side from Viserys. Yeah, I think it's absolutely correct. And we see going forward from here that Daenerys starts making an intentional movement towards being the better version of a Targaryen. We have her liberating these women from sex slavery and from rape in the Lazarene town. And I think that's all feeding towards Martin's eventual journey for Daenerys as her going through the Slaver's Bay, liberating the slaves from all of their slavery, from the Marinese, from the Yunkai, and from the Astapori. And then, you know, attempting to kind of rule justly and kind of learning how to rule in Marine in a Dance of Dragons, which ends up going very, very badly. But at least Danny makes the attempt. I mean, you could make all sorts of criticism about her attempt to rule there and her attempt to free slaves and all the complexities of rule. And that's something that I'm really looking forward to getting to in 2024. We start to see the foundation work that Martin is putting into Daenerys Targaryen as a character in order to push her to that place where she is a genuine liberator. She is a genuine breaker of chains. And that's important groundwork here, even though if it's not even though it's not fully, fully fleshed out here. And a lot of the big and a lot of the reason why that's not fully fleshed out is because there are some significant cultural differences between Daenerys and the Dothraki and the Lazarine that she's encountering. I agree. You have to consider both the individual and the big picture. Both of those are important. You shouldn't lose sight of the one for the other. It's important to think about Daenerys's arc and internal struggle and her motivations, but also look at the impact and right. also look at how she's seen and what happens as a result of her actions. And as you say, Martin immediately complicates Danny's crusade by putting it in a cultural context, the context of Dothraki culture and her relationship to it. And so now it's time to talk about colonialism. I will not be reading replies. <laughs> Please add. I, I know a lot of people just don't want to hear this. Exactly. I know a lot of people don't want to hear this discussion for a variety of reasons. You know, fine, but it, it's basically impossible to talk about Danny as a character without eventually bringing this up. It's yes. not going to be a constant thing we talk about. But especially as we start getting into the question of how Danny's decisions relate to the cultures around her, this is just a natural question. Yeah. But whenever the question of Danny as a colonialist or a white savior character comes up, you, you see the response that, you know, it's just SJWs filtering everything through that lens and you just hate white people and, hey, they had slaves in Africa, etc. And look, yes, the, the evil in man's hearts was not born in a handful of European countries in the 15th century. <laughs> when people bring up colonialism, that's not what we're saying. Like, you know, we call them the Aztec and Inca empires for a reason. There's there's plenty of racism and imperialism among Asian cultures. Yes, the colonization of Africa and the Americas and the Middle East is not the only major atrocity in world history. But it is the biggest one by far, just in terms of sheer scale. It steamrolled a lot of the other ones into oblivion, and it's had an incalculable impact on every level of the systems that followed it. That's why we have to talk about it, because modern culture, including genre fiction, was forged in that crucible. Yeah. It's not because all white individuals are evil. I just want to make that very plain. That's why it's fair to criticize how authors write about these issues, not because I think they're hateful people or because I love censorship as a good socialist, but <laughs> because they're passing on ideas that are directly harmful. Like a system like colonialism as, as kind of nakedly exploitative and awful runs on stories. You have to sell it. The images presented to the people back home about the natives that you're exploiting had real political impact. It changes how people think and it, it, it still works that way. We have to be conscious of this because... That process is still happening and history is going to flow through us. Right. And, you know, Martin, as much as we love him as an author and do think that he exemplifies a lot of the best qualities in fantasy, he is still working within a genre. And we do have to consider the time that he's writing A Game of Thrones. It's 1996 is when the book is published. He starts writing it in 1991. God knows when this chapter was written chronologically in terms of real world history. But real world history has an impact on it and the genre as well has an impact on it. We talk about stories like Conan the Barbarian, the uh, the Robert E. Howard stories that influenced Martin so strongly. And you can read interviews where Martin's talking about Robert E. Howard. But one of the major aspects of Conan the Barbarian is this guy rolling into this kind of foreign town and just wrecking shit in this town. And that's something that's influential on not just Martin, but in terms of fantasy as a whole. Well, like, like Emma was saying, we're not saying hate all white people or kill all white people. Or feel bad if you're a white person. It's, it's, it's much more systemic and diffuse than that. Right. And we're, it's, it's not about targeting one individual and saying you're bad and this is your fault and you should go hang your head down like Charlie Brown. Right, right. Like that's, it's, not, it's not what it's about. It's about understanding where ideas come from. Like with Lovecraft, I love Lovecraft's stories and all the images and ideas that go along with it and all the art and cool stuff that's come out of it. But it's important to recognize not only that Lovecraft himself was unbelievably prejudiced, right. even for his time, but that the sheer skin-crawling feeling of weirdness he captured so well in his stories is – pretty explicitly how he felt about Jews and people with dark skin. Right. So you have to reconcile that. Like the sheer emotions you're feeling when you read his stories, that's where they come from. That's something 
you have to wrestle with. But we, we just want to kind of wanted to say that to get it out of the way as part of Danny's story. So we've, we've addressed it because it's a big part of the discourse and we wanted to just, you know, throw that on marker out about how we think about this. Yeah. But as many people have noted at the same time, and narrative flaws and character flaws are not the same thing. Unfortunately, the two are often conflated with Daenerys. Oh when gosh, we say yeah. that, when we say that maybe Martin unthinkingly passed on some lame tropes in writing Daenerys, that's not the same thing as saying Daenerys herself within the universe she's in is functioning like a colonialist. Right. I, I hesitate to call her that because she's just one lady with dragons. She's not a gigantic power structure. She's not the Dutch East India Company. You know, like the combination of commercial resources and government power. That's just not what she is. And moreover, in this world, Essos is the colonizing continent. Right. It's waves of immigrants from Essos that have colonized Westeros. Westeros is a backwater that actually hasn't had a huge impact on world affairs and doesn't have a huge cultural legacy outside the continent. That being said, Danny definitely does suffer from cultural blind spots, despite her earnest desire to assimilate into the Kalasar. And we do see them here. The error is not in her saving these women from rape. The error is her assumption that she can just personally reshape the Thraki culture to fit those women in in a different way. She just wants to snap her fingers and say, okay, just marry them now. Take them as wives. Like, mm-hmm. Danny, that's a massive policy that would hugely reshape Dothraki culture and make the next generation of Dothraki very different. And I, I can admire that and agree that's the way forward, but it, that's just not how it works. You can't do that overnight mm-hmm. on a whim. And we're going to see that same dynamic in Slaver's Bay where her, her motives are good and her Dracarys moment is, of course, heroic and awesome and badass, but... When it all boils down to governance and a dance with dragons, as, as you were saying earlier, she finds that she can't just, quote, make her people good. Right. That it, it just doesn't work that way. And I think I think you get a little hint of how this cultural conflict will boil over in the bloodshed about Jorah's armor. Like when you have that, that dispute about how hey, you, you fucking Westerosi coward with your plate and steel and that leads to, to a, a fight over this kind of cultural impasse between Westeros, Westeros and Essos and... Uh, I think you see something similar with like Barristan versus Kraz in A Dance with Dragons with Barristan's armor. I don't know. Does that seem a, a, over the a too much of a stretch to make that comparison? No, I don't think it's a stretch at all. I think that comparison is very apt. And I think too, <laughs> this is where I, I admire Martin here a little bit in that what he's doing, especially with Daenerys here and kind of having her saying like, well, they'll just marry the women here. It's 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 kind of a... It's a bite without teeth, I would say is probably the best, the hmm. best way I can describe it because it doesn't – it's not going to actually impact all of Dothraki culture forever. It's only going to stop with Daenerys Targaryen because she doesn't have the force in order to back her up. She's got little limited – she's got three Ka's in her Kalasar and – Kalasar in her little entourage and she's got Jorah Mormont right now. Now, down the road in A Storm of Swords when she gains the Unsullied, when she has three dragons at the end of A Game of Thrones, it becomes a much different proposition. So – that's kind of the idea where you and others, I believe, have talked about how Daenerys' arc in Stormosaurus and is very much reminiscent of Sherman's March to the Sea. And that sometimes, sometimes, as awful as it sounds, sometimes it needs the force of violence in order to end, not end, but revolutionize the society. And I think that is going to be the case for the Dothraki as well, as Daenerys is going to find in The Winds of Winter. They're not going to be swayed by the fact that she is the Khaleesi of the dead Khal Drogo. It's rather going to be the force of her. And on top of motherfucking Drogon, that's going to be the impact that's going to be felt in Dothraki, in the Dothraki nation. Yeah, it's going to be the stallion they bend the knee to, not the Khaleesi. You make a great point that Danny's actual center of power is very fragile. It, it really relies on Drogo giving his say-so. That means if Drogo falls from his horse, not only Danny's in danger, but everyone she's saved is in danger. Mm-hmm. So I think Danny is missing this larger moral point. Yes, she saved these women from further harm. But first of all, she is implicated in the war machine that yep. brought them to harm in the first place. And even more than that, she can't really protect them in the long run, as we're going to see with Arohe by, by the end of Danny's story. And that's really, that is really where Miri Mazdera comes into play. Mm-hmm. Her mission, both in universe and as a character in the narrative, is to make those consequences clear to Danny and the reader. And it just, it works so well to have these issues we're talking about, not just floating in the background, not just part of Danny's interior monologue, but brought to the forefront by this other character's actions and beliefs, just really integrating these issues into the drama, into the storytelling. And, Miri Mazdur's politics, the way she acts on them, and just the sheer drama of her scenes, the next few Danny chapters, like when she's telling Danny, oh, what did you say? You saved me. All of that really just makes her my favorite supporting character in Danny's story. She, she's morally ambiguous in an interesting way, whereas for me, someone like Quaith is ambiguous <laughs> in an uninteresting way, right? I really don't care. But I mean, just look at the reaction online when I said the other day that Miriam Mazdur was a favorite of mine as, as I was rereading this chapter. Some folks were, were aghast and said they just despised her and others declared she did nothing wrong, a la Catelyn Stark. 
I think that gets across as, as how, how well written the character is that she inspires such different reactions. And she's kind of like Stannis in that way, mm-hmm. or more to the point, she's a lot like Melisandre, yes. which I think is a comparison that really stood out to me this time. Obviously, she's an associate woman using blood magic in connection with the claimant to the Iron Throne, like Melisandre. She summons shadows, or, you know, so we see them as in, in Danny A, just like Melisandre does. But more generally, Miriam Osdor is a herald of the Age of Wonder and Terror, as it's called in the prologue to A Feast for Crows. There are so many characters like that that turn up in A Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords. Not just Melisandre, but also Jojen and Thoros and Jock and Hagar. These characters who tempt our heroes down the magical path for good or ill, exposing the cost every step of the way. Miriam Osdur just kind of shows up to the party <laughs> a little early. She's one of those characters who just gets in near the end of game and... As, as I'm going to talk about a lot more in Danny 8 or 9, this makes her the first human being, as opposed to a vague otherworldly power, to use magic in the series. And right. That is, that is quite significant. In this chapter, of course, Miriam Osdur is putting on this like intentionally bland, helpful face. Mm-hmm. And in the terminology of magic tricks, which is something I know George is into, this is what's known as the pledge. The first step of like the three steps in magic. The pledge, the turn, and the prestige. And the pledge is where you present something ordinary and banal. It's just an ordinary playing card like you've seen before to lure the audience in before the real uh, trick takes place. And you know, as, as we said, Danny Seven lays the groundwork for the trippy shenanigans to take place. It doesn't directly get into them. But I think there are already some hints of what's lurking under Miri's uh, benign face. There's the mention of a shy. There's the, quote, bloody bed symbolism, which is supposed to make us think about Robert and Lyanna. There's the way she refers to Danny and Drogo as like these archetypal figures, the great, the great rider and the silver lady all in, in, in caps. And, you know, on first appearance, these are just terms of respect and deference. But knowing more about who Miriam Osdor is and what she actually does, I feel like there were hints as to how she looks at the world. Like Danny and Drogo are archetypal figures, like this cosmic ballet in which Miriam Osdor takes part. And she, you know, she says it's all the will of the great shepherd. And just like Melisandre with Relore, I think Mary Mazdur has much more agency than she's willing to admit. Mm-hmm. And is not just leaving things up to her god, but is actively taking part. But it, it establishes that she is thinking about all this in religious terms. It's not just Danny and Drogo. It's the great rider and the silver lady, these big, larger-than-life historical figures that she's interacting with. And, you know, that, that sense of the bloody bed, of both death and rebirth. So that's where her character is, is kind of oriented. You got Lyanna dying in her bloody bed for John to live. You got uh, Robert dying and being replaced by his, quote, ghost Renly, right. as he's described in both Game and Clash. And that perfectly fits Mary Mazdur's role in the story because she's, she trades Rago for Drogo and she arguably gets traded herself for the dragons, at least in part. You have this theme of only death can, may pay for life, as she'll say in, in Danny's next chapter. Like My ultimate takeaway from this chapter for me is that that line, well, that applies to blood magic in Danny's next chapter, also applies to the political side of things. It also applies to the crusade for the Iron Throne, that Daenerys's realization in this chapter is that these deaths are paying for her life, paying for her the future she wants, and that she doesn't feel comfortable about that. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, that sounds super accurate. I think I think the comparison between Mary Mazdor and Melisandre is really, really strong. As we know, Tywin makes a vague allusion to Melisandre at the end of A Game of Thrones, so we know that we have all these magical characters that are entering into the fold. We also have ideas cre- creeping up early in A Clash of Kings about whether Beric Dondarrion is alive or dead. And obviously, Martin has in mind about this idea of Beric Dondarrion being resurrected over and over again by Thoros and Mir. So, yes, these magical characters showing up is great. And I do love the fact that the first magical character that we get in A Song of Ice and Fire, barring the others in the prologue, which I don't know. I don't even know how to describe them, whether they're the magic or not. Have you just seen episode three? Um, the, <laughs> it, it, like these it's good that the first magical character is someone that is so, so ambiguous. It really reminds me so strongly of what Dallas says in A Storm of Swords about magic and how it's a sword without a hilt. Here, it's sort of the same sort of dynamic that's playing into the role here in Daenerys' storyline. It is a sword without a hilt. You are sac- Daenerys is going to sacrifice practically everything in order to restore Khal Drogo to life. And it's a life that maybe is not worth living, not worth – and in fact, Daenerys makes the ultimate – decision that it, that it's not a life worth living. But Miriam Azdor could possibly be seen as the person who who is the midwife to the birthing of the dragons themselves with her actual blood sacrifice on the yes, funeral pyre. that's great. So, is she good? Is she bad? She's a sword without a hill. That's a perfect way of putting it. She's this, she is she is dangerous. I think even beyond good or bad, she is, she is dangerous and you can like the direction she takes her danger, you cannot like them, but she's this She's just this vital force with, with really strong motivations and, as we've been saying, just ties into the overall themes of the story really well. So, that's why she's she's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And 
we, we've only begun scratching the surface with her because she's actually going to get into some crazy stuff over the next couple of Danny chapters where, as I said online, she just kind of takes over the book yeah. briefly. And it, it's just really powerful. So that's going to be great. So I think that just about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Denier 7. Moving into foreshadowing and groundwork. There's a lot of that in this chapter as we've been kind of suggesting this is a launching pad for a lot of important stuff in Danny's storyline and beyond. So... First and most obviously, while Drogo's planned invasion falls apart very dramatically over the course of Danny's next chapter, the destruction we see the Dothraki inflict in this in this chapter may be a preview for what they do to Westeros when they do eventually invade. And as we said, of course, that's going to be under Danny's rule, not Drogo's, and they're going to be united as one. So they'll be able to do a lot more damage. Yeah, I mean, you have the the prophecy in the world of ice and fire is that there will be a great call of cows who unite the Dothraki into one people, and then will conquer the entire world of Essos and beyond that. So, Daenerys seems to be that person that has been prophesied by the Dothraki to be the individual that is going to be conquering the world. And when she has 150,000 Dothraki screamers riding on Westeros, that's going to be pretty massive and it's going to have fundamental complexities and changes in Westeros as, as a society. And, you know, who knows what happens when they confront the others? Are they all going to go out like chumps? I, I hope not. Hope not myself. But, um, of course, not all the Dothraki are going to be happy about uniting under Daenerys' rule in the Wind Splinter. Yeah, we got Mago, who's introduced for the first time, I believe, in this chapter. He is a blood rider to co at this point, Jaco. And George R. Martin said in an Entertainment Weekly interview in 2011, right around the time that A Dance with Dragons was released, that Mago will play an antagonistic role towards Daenerys in the Winds of Winter. And we already start to see that taking shape here in this chapter, where Mago is saying, oh, Daenerys stole my women from me. And Daenerys is like, you, no, you, you can't have them. I claim them as my own. So that animosity is already taking place here. But who but Kyle Jaco arrives in Danny's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons. And wow, I am really excited to see how that's actually going to play out in The Winds of Winter because I'm not sure it's going to play out quite the same as we saw Daenerys of the Dothraki in season six. I don't think it's going to be like that at all. I agreed. And yeah, that's how you know how kind of thematically central saving Aroha and her fate is for Daenerys' character and how important Martin finds that because he brings it all the way back in The Winds of Winter and says these characters are going to be important again. So that's that's really great. Speaking of things that will pay off after Danny <laughs> takes charge, this is the first time we hear about these cities of Slaver's Bay that they are named explicitly in the text. And they, of course, do indeed go to Slaver's Bay as Jor urges come a storm of swords. But instead of taking part in that system there, Danny ends up making war on it, which is such a great follow-up to this chapter that this, this is the raw material for the slave market over in Slaver's Bay, and Danny is horrified by it. So, of course, it makes perfect sense when she actually goes to those cities that she would try to rebel against them. Yeah, it, it does. And it's cool that we have the, the name chapter Marine. What I think is kind of interesting when you look at kind of Martin's structuring of the story, when you go back to the pitch letter back from 1993, Marine and Slaver's Bay weren't going to be a feature of the story itself. If you look back at it, Daenerys was supposed to find the dragon eggs, birth the dragons, and then unite the Dothraki into a giant Kalasar and then invade Westeros thereafter. The interesting thing that I think happened in A Song of Ice and Fire, and especially in A Game of Thrones, is that the other plot lines that Martin was working on kind of took their sweet ass time, and for good and for and for the good, in my opinion, overall. Because as we all as we've said many times in the past, George R. George R. Martin originally intended A Game of Thrones to end with the Red Wedding, which is absolutely fucking crazy. And you then have Daenerys invading right after Robb Stark's and Catelyn's death at the Red Wedding itself. So yeah, it's it's good that Marie is introduced here. You do kind of wonder whether Martin came back to the idea of, well, did, we need to kind of slow Daenerys down. So she's going to spend some time in Karth and a Clash of Kings, which is not going to be super amazing and great. But then, you know, the Westeros plotline is still kind of taking its sweetest time. So now she's going to spend some time in Slaver's Bay learning how to rule. Agreed, agreed. So uh, we uh, compared Miri Mazder to Melisandre earlier, but rereading this chapter, given how the Dothraki referred to her, this strikes me as another potential parallel for her. The title of Meiji connects her to another witch-like figure in the story, namely Maggie or Meiji the Frog, who you could say is the equivalent character in Cersei's storyline, providing her with certain prophecies about whether she's going to be the queen or not and how many children she'll have and how many children the king will have and ultimately what is going to happen to her when the Valakar wraps his hands around her neck. So, it's interesting. I, I always find prophecy such so fascinating in A Song of Ice and Fire because Martin has spoken a lot about how he always wants it to be related to the character and related to the individual. It can't be this overarching thing that just exists. And a lot of times how Martin does this really, really well is that he makes characters engage in self-fulfilling prophecies. So, Cersei attempting to secure herself and secure her children from someone like Marjorie ends up seeding her downfall in the hands of literal hands of Jamie Lannister, her brother. You have these prophetic figures who, 
either are, are sympathetic but ultimately can't save you, like Jojen, who ultimately can't stop the Ironborn from attacking Winterfell, even though he sees it coming. But then you have like more manipulative ones, like like Maggie or Miri Mazdur, who seem to realize that the POVs are dooming themselves and are kind of just helping them right. along to do it. And I think you can see Martin trying to draw interesting parallels and contrast between Danny and Cersei. When you get to the feast dance, they're both women ruling in, in, in cities and both of their storylines start with a dream. And, you know, uh, Danny's last chapter in the Dothraki series, where she's really stripped down and physically ill is kind of a parallel to Cersei's walk mm-hmm. at the end of a dance with dragons in some way. So maybe this is part of that process where and Martin was like, oh, I can, I can come up with Cersei having her own, her own prophetic witch right. figure. And, and I'm going to connect the two by having her, her name be a version of what Miri Mazdur was called. So I wouldn't be surprised if this was a, a deliberate connection. Uh, but speaking of those, those magical figures, <laughs> our final bit of foreshadowing here is, as we said, Danny Seven features our first mention of Marwyn the Mage. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite background characters in the story who has all this weird, wonderful stuff associated with him. And he's set up in A Feast for Crows as having an important role to play in Danny's story going forward. We've only seen Marwyn in the flesh once so far in Sam's final chapter in A Feast for Crows when he arrives at the Citadel. But his reputation extends far beyond that because he comes up multiple times in the way he does here, being name-dropped, basically. Being spoken of with respect by someone familiar with his work, from Miriam Oster to Kyburn in the Storm of Swords to Roderick the Reader in A Feast for Crows. And as we've said before, I think this is one of Martin's greatest strengths as a writer is how well he he seeds in characters through reputation being talked about. So they have this larger-than-life presence before they show up on the page. We've been talking about that, of course, with Stannis throughout book one. We'll be talking about it in book two with Mance and, as you say, Beric Dondarrion. And I think Martin does a great job with that and does a good job with that with Marwyn here, where even before we meet Marwyn, you kind of get a sense of who he is and what he's going to be all about. Yeah, I love Marwyn the Mage and love thinking about his impact on Danny's future plotline. What I think is going to be really interesting about Marwyn the Mage in The Winds of Winter and Daenerys Targaryen is her connection to Miri Mazdor. Because you can just imagine Marwyn attempting to ingratiate himself with Daenerys Targaryen and saying, yes, I've been to Essos many times. One time I helped a god's wife learn the maester's art. And Daenerys would be like, wait a minute, the god's wife? What was your name again? Marwyn. Marwyn, where have I heard that name before? Yeah, that's going to be interesting, especially since, as we see in the show, and I think this applies to the books, Danny is going to be at least in part kind of backwards looking when she gets to Westeros and a little too concerned about what happened to the Targaryen regime and getting revenge for that rather than moving forward. So Marwyn could be an interesting figure in that regard. I could see Danny choosing to embrace him or rejecting him entirely, which is interesting, especially because he's the one coming to her with news of the others right. and news of their invasion. So it works so well if like she ignores that warning in part because she doesn't trust yes. him because of Miriam Osdur. Like that would be so dramatic and so perfect. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. So... Again, when the Winds Winter drops next week or the week after that, <laughs> we will be looking forward to those Marwyn the Mage references and seeing his interactions with Daenerys Targaryen. True. I mean, as much as Dance is our favorite, my, one of my problems with Dance is that Marwyn doesn't show up right. after he's going off to find Danny at the end of Feast and all the other going off to find Danny characters do at least have a part to play in Dance. But I was just reading to the end of the book, that last Dan- Danny chapter going, where's Marwyn? He's going to show up any second now. And then he doesn't. So I'm, I'm looking forward absolutely to seeing what happens to him. So that wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork, moving on to the theory and discussion portion. And I think there's one obvious debate we got to have about here, and it's a topic that's been debated among the fandom for years and I think was intended to be. Mm-hmm. And that is the question of, does Miri Mazdor actually make a genuine attempt to heal Drogo in this chapter, or is she deliberately leading him to his death and downfall that we're going to see play out over the next few chapters? It's obvious when you read A Game of Thrones and you read Daenerys' recollections of Miri Mazdor that it is very ambiguous and that ambiguity is intentional on Martin's part. So, when Emmett is deep in his mentions of people saying that they hate Miri Mazdor, did she actually try to kill Drogo? Did she not? That's Martin's – That Martin's really the one at fault here. He's the one that's actually the one who's infecting your your mentions on Twitter. Exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame him about it. But yeah, I mean that's it's a great point. There are certain things that are not spelled out in the text that I think we are supposed to eventually solve and figure out. Something like R plus L equals J being only the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. I, think we're, I think we are supposed to discount stuff like Ashara being his mom. Right. But in this case, I think we are supposed to consider both and, and not fully come down on one side or the other. Although I do lean as, as I'll say in a bit, but I think we're not supposed to be completely sure. So – the evidence for Miri Mazdur making a genuine attempt to heal Drogo. This is what she says when she applies the poultice to Drogo's wound. You must say the prayers I give you and keep the landskin in place for 10 days and 10 nights, she said. There will be fever and itching and a great scar when the healing is done. And then she says, drink neither wine nor the milk of the poppy, she cautioned him. Pain you will have, but you must keep your body strong to fight the poison spirits. <laughs> and this is what Drogo does with that information. 
in, in Danny's next chapter. Beneath his painted vest, a plaster of fig leaves and caked blue mud covered the wound on his breast. The herb women had made it for him. Yuri Mazdur's poultice had itched and burned, and he had torn it off six days ago, cursing her for a magi. The mud plaster was more soothing, and the herb woman made him poppy wine as well. Hmm. He'd been drinking it heavily these past three days. When it was not poppy wine, it was fermented mare's milk or pepper beer. So on the surface, that seems pretty clear, right? Drogo didn't follow the rules. He fucked with Mary Mazdur's poultice. He ignored her advice and so his wound festered beyond repair. This is going to be Mary Mazdur's explanation herself when she shows up in Danny's next chapter. And it does fit thematically for Drogo, like the, this uber-masculine, manifest-destiny, sun-king kind of character. Again, we've, we've said before, he's kind of like an exaggeration of Robert. It, it fits for him to be brought down, not just by his, quote, flies bite of a wound, but by his own swaggering insistence on doing whatever he wants at all times, and his vulnerability to pain. It would be very interesting if that's, you know, what brought Drogo down, is he couldn't deal with that poultice burning. Interesting. So, that is good evidence for the team heal, so to speak. But on the other side, you have team death. The idea that Miri Mazdura is, is, was deliberately leading Drogo to his doom. So, after all the blood magic is done, this is how Miri Mazdura talks about Drogo. It was wrong of them to burn my temple. That angered the great shepherd. And this is how she talks about Rago. The stallion who mounts the world will burn no cities now. His calisar shall trample no nations into dust. That sure doesn't sound like she was ever interested in saving their lives, right? That sounds like she's condemning them as utter historical monsters. And I, it's hard for me to say she's wrong... But I also don't think she would be trying to heal them in that case. No. I mean, this is this is a the important thing is that that motivation and thus potentially a strategy that goes with it predates Drogo tearing off the poultice and drinking himself stupid. Like you know, Drogo being horrible, Rago potentially being horrible. Those are true before Drogo is is ever an idiot about Miriam Muster's uh, medication. So that makes me think maybe that was the plan all along. I mean. Obviously, there are other decisions being made here. Danny decides herself to summon Miri Mazdur after Drogo falls. Jorah decides himself to bring Danny into the blood magic ceremony when Shelford <laughs> begins. But Miri Mazdur does claim that trading Rago for Drogo was always the plan, that this was always her intention. And after all, as we know from Maggie the Frog and A Feast for Crows, Maggie's can see the future mm-hmm. with, with just a little drop of blood. So I think Martin definitely wants us to at least consider that she has manipulated events to produce this outcome from the moment she offered to heal Drogo. What do you think? Yeah. You know, I, as you were reading through the instructions that Miri Mazdor was saying to Kyle Drogo, that reminds me of freaking Littlefinger telling Ned, well, we'll just have to crown Joffrey then. We're just going to have to do this in order to kind of get away with this. And, you know, if something goes wrong, it'll just – we'll work itself out down the road. So, what – is that more than anything else doing to me? That's basically Miri Mazdor, in my opinion. In my opinion, I come down on Team Death, obviously, as if you can already tell, of her basically telling Drogo the things that he's not supposed to do. So, he will, in fact, do those things the same way that Littlefinger tells Ned to do a certain set of things that he knows that, that, that Ned will never obviously do because they're immoral and they're wrong. In the case of Drogo, his ultra masculinity is in play here and he's not going to listen to some Meiji tell him what to do and he's not and he this is the bite of a fly as he says about his wound earlier in in this chapter itself so i'm coming down on team death ultimately and i feel that maybe miri mazdor in addition to being melisandre is also little figure here no that's a great comparison i was also thinking about when varus is smuggling Tyrion out of king's landing at the end of a storm of swords and Tyrion's like you know i I feel like killing my dad first where would i have to go to do that varus (laughs) says I don't want you to do that, Tyrion. That's a terrible idea. It's right up there, this number of steps to the left. There you go. But please don't do it. Yes. Or he's, he's at some level, he's trying to manipulate Tyrion into doing it. And I feel like that's what's going on with Miri Mazdur here is that, yeah, she realizes or is willing to bet that Drogo is going to ignore her advice. Because, yeah, he tore it off, but then the herd women came in with their medicine. And mm-hmm. their medicine, I assume, generally works okay, or they wouldn't still be in that position. Mm-hmm. So why did Drogo's wound rot anyway? That that seems like there's there's some mischief going on there with Miri Mazdur. As you, as you said... She laid Drogo on the altar when she was healing him. Right. That seems, that seems more like it's more about sacrifice than healing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I was talking earlier about Miriam Mazdur's relationship to the Great Shepherd and how she she said it's it's just it's the will of the Great Shepherd. They, they angered him and it was wrong of them to burn my temple. And so that makes me think that when she says at the end of this chapter, you know, the Great Shepherd protects his flock, she's being very ironic. And what she's actually saying is the Great Shepherd protects his flock from you assholes. Right through me. Yes. That's what's actually happening here. I think that's what she's saying under the surface. Yeah, I 100% agree. So, Miri Mazdor murdered Khal Drogo. Are we sad? <laughs> Not precisely. We are a little bit sad about Rego, though, I think. Maybe, possibly. I think I think we are. As we said, there's a lot more to say about what Miri Mazdor does and why, and we're going to get a lot more into that 
in Danny 8 and 9. But we wanted to get this debate out of the way because, of course, a lot of the evidence for it comes up in this chapter yep. and it was going to be on people's minds, we knew. So, yeah, overall, I got condemned in team death. But like I said, I think we are supposed to preserve the ambiguity and not be 100% sure. Absolutely. So, I think that about wraps us up for this episode on Game of Thrones Daenerys 7. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It's a real pleasure that we've gotten a lot of listens, not just from our Game of Thrones episodes, although they are seemingly pretty popular at this time for some unknown reason. But, you know, <laughs> but you know, we've, we've seen an increase in listenership over the months that we've been doing this podcast. We're eternally grateful to you guys for your support for us with your ears, as well as some of you who are our patrons as well. Yeah, as I said in our most recent Game of Thrones episode, I'm just really having a lot of fun yeah. doing this with you, man. And I'm, I'm just really enjoying myself and enjoying the text and enjoying talking with you about it. And so obviously I love all the listenership and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. So grateful for our patrons on Patreon. But yeah, I would, I would still be enjoying doing this right now if no one was listening but us. It's just it's just been a lot of fun and it's only going to get more fun. I enjoy doing this with you too, man. It's a lot of fun. So as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbeam, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Our Patreon can be found at patreon.com forward slash ASOF, where you can find our 15 bonus episodes, get early access to our regular and bonus episodes, and get early access to our Game of Thrones review episodes. Check us out at ASOIAF on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4. We don't know the title of that episode yet. It's really cool how HBO has actually concealed that. But we also have Tyrion 8 coming up, in which my prayers are finally, finally answered. It's the first large-scale battle in A Song of Ice and Fire, the Green Fork, between Tywin Lannister's Army of the West and Roose Bolton's Northern Infantry. And in honor of Jeff's special day, (laughs) I will be reading the synopsis for that chapter. We're going to shake things up so Jeff can kind of run the depth section and talk about all the military stuff he loves. So wish me luck, everybody. I hope I don't mess it up. Oh, man, it's going to be so much fun there. And then, of course, we got to talk about whether Roose Bolton threw the battle. And oh, man, it's going to be so good. We're just going to have so much fun with this chapter. It's only going to be like nine hours long. Hope you guys are okay with that. They'll love it. They'll take it and they'll love it, Jeff. Absolutely. So thanks so much for listening and we will see you guys next week.